0: To join SelfWealth now, use the link in your podcast player or head to selfwealth.com.au and use the coupon code RASK during sign-up. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Anirban, welcome back to the Australian Investors Podcast, mate. Thanks for having me, Owen. Today we're going to be talking about uh, just a, a bit of what's going on in the economy. Catching up, we'll talk about how to value tech stocks, which is really interesting because you've written a lot, a lot about this recently. Uh, and we're going to share a bit of our screen um, with with listeners and viewers. So if you are on YouTube, you can you can jump on. and You can have a look at what what I'm showing Anirban, particularly here at the start. I'm going to share my screen just to kick things off, mate. I thought I'd share my screen. And I've put together four companies, right? I'm going to assume that you can see this. I'll try to zoom in a bit. Uh Um, And these four companies, there are two tech stocks and there are two other companies, two industrial companies, let's say. Um, I've got two US side by side. That's the first one here. And then I've got two Aussie small caps. So I'm hoping you can identify a bit of a guess who, Uh which one is the tech stock, Uh, amongst the two here from the us and so for those people that are listening not viewing um we can see one company on the left hand side has pretty i guess strong revenue growth over the last three years one on the other side also has pretty strong revenue growth but over maybe five years uh, seems to have less earnings down the bottom line um which one do you reckon switch mate
1: well, like the left-hand side looks like uh, a tech stock. I think I probably even might know the company. I'm guessing, but Ooh, I'm, I'm never be never be sure. I, I mean, you know, the the, the 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 gross profits are pretty high, and they're rapidly increasing. In, in at least the left-hand side, from what I can see, I'm trying to you know see. I can't really see the the right-hand side that well, and there's a fair I'll, bit of. Dil- I'll, keep, I'll zoom in. There's a fair bit of dilution happening in the total number of, in a full, you know, the weighted average diluted number of shares, fully diluted number of shares. So that would almost suggest that, you know, that's the case. Now, the other one on the right-hand side.
0: I tried to pick two companies that didn't have colors in their financial statements, so it didn't give any anything uh-uh. away. But um, <laughs> I've got a bit of red in this one. Uh, so you've got, see, so on the one hand, you said the one that had rapidly rising gross profits and more dilution. Um, and then the other side is this one here, which is it, it's got some net debt, uh, although it's been coming down. By looks of it. It's got some CapEx figures down the bottom. Yeah.
1: So is that billion or million? Um, they're million, right? This
0: is millions. Yep. So we've got $92 billion of revenue in 2020.
1: Yeah, I mean, I might even have a guess of what that company might be. There's a fair bit of capital expenditure there, right? And it's got earnings mm. per share, uh, but it's got cash dividends there too. Huh. Okay, ninety-two billion. Okay, I might not have a good idea of which one that one might be, but you know, that looks more like an industrial. Uh, but it,
0: I don't know. <laughs> and what what makes you think that?
1: The cost of sales seems pretty high, right? Relative to so the the Cogs are pretty high, so the gross profits are smaller, if I can tell, right? So that's one of the one of the it's it's not as asset light as it would seem at least that's um that's what I can ga- gather from looking at the one on the right hand side, right? Whereas the one on the left hand side seems to be asset light, um, so that's 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 one definitely telltale sign typically the other thing is that you know uh, there's a lot of capex like you know tech tech companies also have capex the assets total assets like that's rapidly increasing on the right hand uh, on the one on the right hand side right i mean you're 51 billion mm. of capex that's like a capital heavy business signature um yeah so you know if i had to say i would say that the one on the right hand side is uh, is is a CapEx heavy business, whereas the one on the right-hand side is not. Uh, one on the left-hand side is not on the right-hand side is, but that's my guess.
0: Yep. Okay, so you've, you're guessing the left-hand side is uh, tech stock. Um, some of the things that we've noticed, like shares going up, number of shares outstanding, really wide gross profit margins, but increasing. Um, it also says subscription under revenue. And then the, the other one we see not $92 billion of sales, but $66 billion cost of sales. So the net earnings figure down below is much smaller relative to revenue, and it's got total assets increasing. So ding, 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 you are correct, mate. Any? Uh, would you care to guess, just take a stab in the dark, one of these companies you know um, pretty well. I think both of the companies you know, generally speaking, but one of them you know pretty well. Which one, would you be brave enough to guess which company? Are?
1: So maybe the left-hand side, I'm not 100% sure, but the left-hand side, Could be Cloudflare as an example, maybe. Uh, I'm guessing it's kind of hard to tell because a lot of those companies have similar numbers around this time. Right-hand side, I'm not really sure uh, what that company is. Um,
0: is, 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 is If you give me a hint, is it industrial? I'd say uh, consumer staples, consumer discretionary.
1: Okay. Okay. You know... Uh, consumer discretion, I'm not really sure. I was going to say Nike, but it seems a bit low for Nike's revenue.
0: Okay. The, the red color might give it away for the brand. So it's a red, there's some red font in there. It's a big brand, global brand. Um, Okay. I'll save you the pain. It's Target. That's Target's <laughs> accounts. <right there>. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so you were you- very close. You you're very close with the other one. The other one isn't Cloudflare, but it's Okta. Oh, so it's like the cybersecurity yeah. business, which mm-hmm. we've talked about before, which is very similar. And the, 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 in the US, they obviously give nothing away with the standard financial statements. It's all black and white or blue and white. Um, but yeah, like th- I, the, this is actually an idea from Joe Omega, um to try and do something like this in a podcast where we could put two sets of financials side by side and see how we mm-hmm. go. Now, the next one, um, to bring it back home to Australia is probably going to be harder. So um, what would, what I've done here is I've got ugly, like, financials. No, there's nothing pretty about these. But right. um, he, here we can see two different companies, and I'll see if I can fit them both on the screen for you. Yes. Uh, one is an industrial company, and one is a tech stock. Um but these are small caps. So we've gone not only to Australia where it's slightly different reporting, but also down the market cap spectrum. Mm-hmm. So just to summarize for people that are listening while you take a look at these, we can see here one company on the left is reporting a loss. The loss has narrowed from $4 million to 900000 That's the company on the left. It has got um, seems to have pretty wide gross profit margins. Um, and on the right-hand side, we've got a company that uh, has... A list of expenses it doesn't really break out um, cost of goods sold or it does but it's under the expenses item it's a huge cost of goods sold it's got a lot more revenue 461 million dollars versus 25 for the wide gross profit um, it's it's actually uh, making a profit but if we look at the profits it actually it seems like there may be a few other things in the mix here of why you know profits may have eventuated this year um, so what do you think?
1: Well, this one again seems like left one, left hand side seems to be a technology company, or seems like has a tech flavor. The other one definitely cost of goods sold being high basically means that you're making some physical product, something physical. Uh, you're not just sending selling bits and bytes, <laughs> which have in incremental zero cost. So it looks like that you know I'd say that you, you know one on the right is industrial or some capex heavy company. One on the left is. Not, I mean, yeah, in terms of, I mean, other costs, I mean, you could see the scaling as well that, you know, the left-hand side is scaling, um, right-hand side, well, right-hand, uh, right-hand side is also scaling.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, this set of financials, don't you think? Yeah. Like we've seen a massive increase in revenue from $158 million to $461 million year over year. And we can see the cost of goods sold going up nearly 3x as well. So basically every cost has gone up nearly 3x in one year.
1: I mean, if I had, if I had to hazard a guess, I mean, is it like, you know, they have, you know, occupancy costs and things like that, you know, is this like some, a, some sort of, you know, building leasing company or some, some company that's making some sort of rent <laughs> income? I don't know. Uh, but again, that would seem like the cost of goods sold seems still pretty high. So I don't know. Maybe it's making something. I have no idea.
0: Yes. So, so yeah. So you're right. It's um. So this company, you were right again with your um guesses, being that this one's the industrial company, and the other one here is the tech company that's scaling. It like just on the surface, it looks like slower. But it's actually scaling more sustainably by the looks of it. The one on the right is National Tire and Wheel. It trades under the ASX ticker symbol NTD, and it's um, a wheel distributor, wheel and tire distributor in Australia. It's uh, the biggest independent. And the reason why its revenue exploded like this is because it made an acquisition, an acquisition right. of a company that was bigger than it. And um, you can see there's a lot of unusual costs in here, like professional fees and acquisition costs went up to 3.5 million. Um, you can see employee expenses and other costs went up to $58 million from 17 and there's a lot of depreciation in there. And on the other side, um, this company is actually Alcidian, the uh, technology, like it's a software company that does health tech. Um, so it offers something called Maya Precision, which is um, installed in hospitals and um, out of hospital to track patient flow, to do clinical decision support. Um, so that's this company's it's fallen, I think 70% over the past year when I pulled the numbers as at the date of this recording. Um, So those are the two companies, you got them right, mate. And um, I think this will will kind of, um, I guess, help us lead into the next topic of conversation, which is basically how to value tech stocks. So one of the things that's going on in the market at the moment is tech stocks have been swamped. And for an investor like me, I don't necessarily see that as a negative. Uh, I mean, I don't like to see portfolios fall. As a long-term accumulator, I feel like this is actually an interesting time because now I can suddenly potentially buy companies that are that I've always wanted to own at cheaper valuations. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm too early. I've been. It's hard to know whether you're right or early, um, or wrong or early. Um, what do you think?
1: Yeah, I, I think that's that's sort of the right. That's my approach. I wouldn't say it's the right approach. Or all that, you know, I think if you're a long-term investor, then cheaper stock prices, share prices. Mean you can own more of those businesses that you like, and if you're not looking to sell in the near term, if your holding period is like a decade or more, then yeah, that's certainly an interesting time to you know uh, valuation. You you know, like when you said Alcidian's, you know, share price has contracted by seventy percent. I mean, (laughs) there are so many companies whose share prices have contracted by seventy percent, eighty percent from all time highs. Um, So yeah, like I mean, it's it's very hard watching your portfolio shrink by like you know by half but at the same time if if you have if you are regularly investing to the markets definitely um, an advantage right i mean you can ignore the you know loss that that you have it's not a realized loss in that sense right mm.
0: um and i think i think for it's it's, it's almost you know, when CEOs or CFOs say it's a tale of two halves or a tale of two quarters, it's it's a one... They say that so often during COVID. It almost seems like that it's, it's a tale of two different investors or two different sectors. It's like there's tech stocks or growth stocks, and then there's everything else. Um, everything has been a little bit uh, punished, but tech stocks in particular and those high-quality stocks that had those rich valuations, they've all been binned. Even if they're growing, a lot of the times they're still... Like some of the companies that I follow are still growing. Fundamentally, they're growing, um, but their shares are still falling. They might have one good day and then they fall. Um, But I guess that plays into this whole idea around sentiment as well. Um, We see, you know, consumer confidence. I'll just bring this up for those people that are watching, real quick. Uh, This is US consumer confidence. It's at, I think, I think it's at a ten-year low or twenty-year low or something like this. You can see, I've got the uh, Michigan Consumer Sentiment chart here, and you can see it since uh, on Trading Economics since it was reported, it's basically at the lowest point. So there's that. In Australia, we've got. Uh, I don't think it's. I think it's near COVID lows. So consumer confidence trending sharply down. For me, mate. I mean, I'm not an economist. Uh, I you know I just tr- track these things out of interest more than anything. For me, if consumer confidence is so low and going lower, it would seem to me that if you're trying to control inflation, that, uh, well, you're doing your job, basically, because your consumers aren't confident. So they're not going to be spending as much. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's kind of the feel that I get.
1: Yeah, I think that's a very reasonable, um, you know, that's a very reasonable. Uh, assessment, right? Like, I mean, what the central banks, I think, are doing, they're doing two things. Like, A, they realize that inflation is high, so they have to, you know, push the, you know, the brakes, so to speak. And one way to do that is to raise interest rates, right? And these flurry of, like, high, like 0.5 and 0.75 type of increases, they're there to sort of apply that brake, right? And and it's very similar, like, whether you look at the U.S. Or, or Australia. I mean, when the interest rate goes up in the U.S., it doesn't directly impact the mortgage market, but it indirectly impacts the mortgage market in the sense that those people who have mortgages, their rates don't go up, but new mortgages are more expensive, which then has impact on building approvals, which then has impact on demand for building goods, and which then has impact for other things like you know, new white goods and things like that. So there's a flow on effect. So that, that that's already starting to happen. And maybe, you know, this tough talk on uh, interest rate rises is meant to curb Consumer spending, but but the other, uh, you know, one of the things uh, like I like talking about is a lot of the stuff that is that we're thinking and looking at is backward looking, right? So you put out Target, and you know I like to use Target as an example. Target's um, inventory was about fifteen billion dollars last quarter. It was up forty percent year over year. Walmart's inventory was like sixty billion, and it was up like thirty five percent. These companies' inventories do not increase at that. Magnitude, target inventory is like plus three percent, minus three <laughs> percent every year, right? So that is that is very odd. And I think a lot of things, you know, this this is something that Tim Cook has talked about. He when he was asked about you know where is the shortage, and he was talking from a technology point of view. He he was saying, well, the shortages are in the old nodes. What that means is, and his nodes definition is basically older chips. One would think there should not be any shortage in the older chips. Right. But what he was saying is what has happened is that a lot of holding has happened. You know, initially, when COVID happened, a lot of orders were cut. But because of stimulus and people staying home, the buying patterns changed and a lot of orders started coming through. And then people said, oh, we cut orders. Now we need to remake up for it. So they overordered. And that sort of continued for a while because, you know, the with the lockdowns, I think the basic like distributed systems are very good at um, carrying signals, but when the distributed uh, system's signal-carrying mechanism is tempered with, you you sort of get out of equilibrium. So that's basically happened, right? So we had lockdowns in the West and lockdowns in the East, and now we have lockdowns still in China and various other parts. So the basic signaling mechanism is kind of distorted, which means that signals do not properly. So uh, to use Target as an example, Target has an excess of, of white goods, it's excess of uh, outdoor furniture has got a lot of TVs, <laughs> which they will probably have to discount, you know, in July. Uh, and other companies, are, you know, have said the same thing, whether it's Walmart. So there's a lot of discounting going to happen, which will have an impact on forward orders. That should, in turn, result in some smoothing of ocean freight and things like that. Right. I think the big wild card, in my opinion, is still the lockdowns in China and the strict COVID zero policies in China. That has an impact on not just consumer spending there. It has other impacts like, you know, for example, no tourists from China coming. Um, it has impacts such as, you know, their productions being curtailed and things like that. So, uh, you, you know, as I said, I think we are still in a distorted economy. But, uh, you know, so consumers have been down. I think the rates and everything else are doing its work. And I think hopefully they'll work through the system in due course.
0: Mm. Actually, it's interesting because a lot of companies, um, Danielle, a QA on Twitter made this point yesterday, which is that a lot of companies um, have excess inventory right now. They've banked on last year being this year, and it hasn't been the case. And we saw BWX, which is a serial acquirer of beauty products and what have you, um, it fell 70% yesterday on the ASX um, for a myriad of reasons, but that's an example of a company that has a lot of inventory on its balance sheet. Um, And it's interesting, though, that because even Woolworths here in Australia has come out and said, you know, we're going to cap prices on some consumer staples, um, which means they're going to eat the margin basically. Um, So yeah, I I guess this is just a whole way of thinking like for me, at least I always try and have a bent towards optimism when I invest, because that's kind of like the default stance. I think if you're a long-term investor and for an investor, who's looking at companies that were the market darlings and are still extremely high quality. Now I'm thinking, okay, well, how do I value these businesses? And, and, um, maybe that's something we can we can talk to now, mate. Is like I know you penned an article. I'll just share the screen um, for those that are watching live. It's called "The On the Hidden Profitability of Software Companies," and you use some examples. We've talked about dollar-based net retention on the show before and underlying profitability. I heard a I tuned into a, a kind of webinar the other week, and uh, one of the investors there is a traditional value investor in the sense that. He's just looking for the asset growth. So he's looking for balance sheet items. He's looking for net assets to go higher. He's excluding intangible assets, so on and so forth. Um, and he did mention that maybe technology companies require a different lens. And I would highly agree with that. You made the point before that basically you've got uh, you know two totally different companies. When you look at the financials, why wouldn't it be the case that you use two different strategies or methods for analyzing those companies, right? And so, maybe we can just riff on this for a little while is basically how can investors think about this in your opinion yeah
1: so like one way to think about it is so it, so when you think about subscription businesses, a subscription bis- business basically means that you are selling a product and it's a recurring revenue stream that you're going to get over a period of time as long as they haven't canceled the product. Many companies in the in the in the software as a service space also have this uh, this this um, the slogan called "land and expand," and what that really means is that you try to you try to find a customer using a product, but then you have a multiple products in your in your in your suite. So once you've landed a customer, they're happy with one of the products that you have been able to sell them, then you can sell them more, which is an expansion. Now, expansion doesn't necessarily have to happen with products; it can also happen using more seats. So, for example, if you sell like hundred licenses to a company, basically you might you know have acquired you might have been able to sell the software to say the IT team maybe the business management team uh, or you know the HR team of the same company could also utilize the same software so that's more seats right then there's there's a third dynamic that can come into play some companies charge based on usage so one way to expand again is that you know if you're charging based on usage which could be like you know more CPU more storage more writes more reads you know uh, more containers whatever you want to think about it you know this is more this is going more heavily into sort of technology landscape uh, you know more it and and devops space in, in that case then uh, and analytics space for example in, in that case then you know once your people start using your software and they find value they might use it more right and therefore you you know on a usage based thing you can have more usage so the, so the idea of Do- uh, land and expand is that your same customer if, you would, if a customer base was say, generating you $100 of revenue last year, if they can generate you $120 of revenue this year, then that's an expansion of 20% or dollar-based net retention, as they like to call it, of 120%. So what what I like about this particular metric is, there's A, there's an exponential nature to this, right? So if you can generate 20% more from that customer base, and you can continue to do that over long periods of time, that basically shows two things a that people love your love your products b that you are very good at innovating and c that your product is becoming more and more sticky with your customer there's becoming more and more ingrained in their in their day-to-day usage all of those things should be good. There's, there's going to be high switching costs for this sort of product so now now one way to think about this is when Now, okay, as a backtracking, there's another metric that companies report, which is, I think, underutilized, which is known as the remaining performance obligation, right? This is basically the the number of, or this is the dollar value of contracts that you have signed that are going to be recognized in the future, right? So sometimes what happens is companies will sign deals uh, that are long-term, say three-year contracts, two-year contracts, maybe five-year contracts, in order to get maybe a bit of a discount. And they have committed to spend this much with you. So that, that in my mind, it shows, you know, if you think qualitatively, it, it tells you commitment. Right, Committed contracts means commitment. If you're making like a half a million dollar commitment, you're really committed to that, uh, that relationship. Those revenue then, as they use it, are going to be so that RPO or remaining performance obligation is going to turn into revenue. Right. So in a way the expansion and you know the selling is done ahead of time so your sales marketing team have done the sales that's showing up in the rpo but you're not recognizing it and it's not showing up in revenue yet right so one lens to look at is just from a from a retention point of view so if you if you say like you know this particular company say cloudflare it reported revenue retention of like 127% that means it generated 27% more this quarter than it did in the past year um, from, the, from the cohort of customers retail, right? So that is showing up in your revenue. And one way to think about it is that if you think about the sales and marketing as two components, one that is responsible for landing new deals, another that's responsible for expanding new deals. Effectively, if you just exclude the, the landing component, because the lands are typically showing up in the remaining performance obligation, right? They're going to show up in the future then you would see that, well, this company is actually quite profitable because you remove the the cost for landing new deals. Then you'd say this company is growing at 27% and it's probably profitable on an outputting basis at around 25%, right? Now, of course, you can argue that if I don't land any customers, then I will not be able to expand, which is true. But remember, as the base of these companies are growing, like companies like Cloudflare that I've used as an example, it's not that they're, uh, expansion rates have decreased, which basically points to the innovation, right? If you're innovating fast enough and landing more customers, then you're able to sell that same customer base a lot more, even at a larger scale, right? So that's one way to look at, you know, the, the hidden profitability of the company. So they're, they're not profit. Many companies are not profitable by design because they're sort of trying to get those committed contracts locked in. They're trying to build the product. And they're trying to, uh, you know, Just go after Greenfield. The final thing that I think a lot of investors miss with software, and I'll stop after that, is, you know, the the thing that people think about is, well, you know, if you are replacing someone, then somebody's going to replace you. But most of the time, what's actually happening is they are not replacing, they're not uh, what, what I would call rip and replace right? There are more greenfield opportunities, right? So if you use Okta as an example, so Okta is not replacing anything really, right? Okta is basically providing a new form of identity and security management and login management for people. They're not really replacing anything as such, right? Or it's replacing very, you know, um, very cumbersome old tools of providing security. That's what it is replacing, right? Or, or like zero as an example, right? Zero is not replacing another software typically. It's basically replace, replacing the spreadsheet, right? So often wean field opportunities that they have, and then it really the retention rate is an example of innovation and how quickly the, the, the counterpoint I'll make is that if a company is a software company, is a SaaS company, enterprise software company, and it does not report retention metrics, that's something going on there because that's one of the most important metrics, like you know those are companies that tend not to invest in because then, well, you know, if you're not telling me an important metric, uh, that means, you know, there's something, you know, maybe it's not good. It's not good enough. Maybe, you know, it's, it's, you know, something is being hidden underneath it and so. so that's how I think about it.
0: Yeah. I, so I, there are so many points and perspectives around that, but I think you you've, you've summarized something that I was going to talk to, which is that um, basically how we value companies uh, if we're looking at tech companies is that, typically in the past we would use discounted cash flow analysis for example if we're looking at um, if we're looking at target which we've got just here you could easily just from the set of financial statements just like income statement or cash flow statement re- remove capex or any and any leases that you want to remove and you could get a rough estimate provided you were okay with the working capital of free cash flow you could just go yep that's free cash flow it's what I've been taught at school what have you but it seems to me that uh, a lot of investors, really, or analysts too—not just you know everyday investors—haven't really caught on to this, which is surprising to me. That what you see on an income statement is what the company gives you, but it doesn't necessarily reflect the true economics of a business. And you know, you know, I, I've, for those people that are watching, um, I've got my old um, zero discounted cash flow analysis here. And there are many shortcomings to discounted cash flow analysis. I'm I'm fully aware of those. Um, But one of the things that I kind of grasped at, which before, it was even before I really knew what dollar-based net retention was or how powerful it was, was basically just looked at the financials and said, well, how much of this is spent acquiring new customers? How much of it could be thrown out if they chose to? And what would the profitability be like? And if you looked at just the earnings of zero, you would say it's not very profitable. And it's never going to be profitable if it keeps this up. But I think the insight here came from recognizing on the income statement, well, maybe some of that sales and marketing isn't necessary. Maybe it's maybe it's more variable than people believe. And as the business scales, that will decline. And that's basically the thesis that I took into evaluation of, of Zero. And the risk for me doing that valuation and thinking of it that way was basically, well, how good is the business? How high quality is the business? Can it retain its customers? Can it increase prices? And ultimately, uh, where is it? My two, The two variables that matter most to my model are the revenue per customer and how many customers they retain. Um, because if you can increase your, your revenue per customer, um, meaning that you have pricing power while retaining customers, you're going to end up in a situation where, you know, you 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 have more revenue, and more of it's falling straight to the bottom line because there's not as much getting eaten away with ongoing customer acquisition cost. An interesting note that you brought up before, and one thing I'll mention here is that, um, in a lot of these companies like to report when they report SaaS metrics, they like to report annualized recurring revenue per user or annual recurring revenue per user, and they try and give you what is ARPU. Um, like revenue per user but that could actually be at a point in time so june 30th or december 31st every year whereas the metrics that you use in your model are typically lagging one year and so you just sometimes you've got to understand that sometimes you actually you're already working a year ahead of your model and so you're the, the effective the forecast is what's the end of next year looking like and um, i think a few people miss that when they model is they model okay i've got financials, but they aren't matching up with what management is saying. And that's because management is giving you the end of the year figure. Like if it's monthly recurring annualized recurring revenue, it's that June period, uh, typically when the users are highest. So um yeah, I, I I'm all aboard this train of thought, mate. When you when you break apart, and you've got a really neat chart on the Seven Investing website where you break apart um that sales and marketing, you could almost do it to an extent with R D as well. How much of that R and D is Recur- truly recurring and how much of it is you know, growth focused. Um, and I think if, if investors saw this, they would see, wow, these software companies are really impressive. One thing that um, we wanted to talk to today is that the discounted cash flow analysis as a whole, regardless of what kind of company you're, you're doing it on, is quite sensitive, sensitive to inflation. It's sensitive to discount rates. It's sensitive to this, that, and the other. Um, I read something of yours on 7investing where you talked about Zscaler. And you basically did a reverse DCF. So for people that aren't aware, and I'll share my screen again in just a second, for people that aren't aware, uh, a reverse DCF is basically, instead of trying to set a price target or trying to say, this is my intrinsic valuation, you try and solve it the other way. You, you set the intrinsic valuation at the share price today and then you work backwards to say, well, what is the market assuming for this growth? So maybe I'll, I'll try and share my screen with you now um, and I'll just bring this up because you you've shared a very simple model, but it's it's quite I guess eloquent as well. So I'll bring this up here, and so people can see who are watching live. Um, let's bring this in. Um, let's hide this. So here we can see um, we can see, and I'll make it a bit more obvious. We can see a very simple model that you've done, mate, for Zscaler, which basically has the future forecasted free cash flow, and then it's got discounted free cash flow and you've got a growth you've got a growth rate from years one to 10 of 40 percent so this would be the free cash flow growth rate terminal rate of four percent and a discount rate of 11. how do you then use this model to make sense of valuations in tech stocks
1: yeah so i would say first you can change that growth rate for years one to ten to say 34 percent um if you do that yep yeah then we will match up with roughly with the share price i think um Yep. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So <clears throat> so what you did for example with the with with the zero model that's a very detailed model where you're making assumptions about growth rate, cost of goods sold, you know, how R&D is scaling. You, you basically are looking at the entire business and I, I think it's a very useful exercise where you are trying in your head to figure out the econ not just the economics of the business but how various what are the levers that the business has, right? How and what happens when you're pulling those levers and you're making, I guess, you know, your average case estimate. And you can, of course, tweak the model to allow for different things to have a range of um, fair values. Right. So you try to guess the future evolution of free cash flow. And because I'm not as smart as you are, mate, so what I do is (laughs) I take the easy route. Um, So so I I say, well, that's too hard. I can't figure that out. So what. It, now this only works if a business has some decent free cash flow being thrown uh, currently. So ZScaler is a, is a software company, uh, a mid cap, large cap. You can call it you know a mid cap capish in the US land. So what I do is I basically tr- I basically assume that there's going to be a constant growth rate for the first decade, uh, starting now, and then after that decade it's just going to be a terminal growth rate. And I use a, I've been using a discount rate eleven percent. It basically means that. Um, if my share price, if my fair value is say $100 and my discount rate is 11%, then I'm basically assuming that I'm going to get 11% return. Right? Uh, that's, a, that's a basic way. And, and then because I fixed the terminal growth rate at 4% and the discount rate, and you can vary these numbers based on your choice. Well, that's what I have done. I can then see, well, based on the input of the current cash flow last 12 months, the cash and the debt. You know, in this case, I've said cash is this and debt is this. A uh, debt is zero, but it's actually it's other. It's, it's they have like maybe one point five or six billion of, of cash, but they've got some convertible notes which I've, I regard as debt. So subtracting it out, basically, I can say debt is zero and cash is seven hundred million. Uh, I look at the current shares out, or I look at sort of the estimated shares out at the end of the year, and and then I look at the current share price being pulled in uh, by the uh, by the numbers tool. And then I just reverse compute, and basically reverse computing the growth rate. In this case, it tells me that the free cash flow needs to grow at roughly 34%. Or the market is basically saying, under these assumptions, free cash flow is going to grow at 34%. That's what's baked into the share price. Then I ask myself the question, do I think that's a reasonable estimate? Right? And uh, the answer might be yes, in which case then you're looking at some roughly 11%, 10 11% return. Or if the answer is no then you're looking at a potentially much higher return. Now, in, so in there too, I don't really try to, to be very precise. So I'm not, I'm not a big fan of precision there. So what I say is, that, look, this company grew in a recently sales by 60% plus, uh, and it's actually been accelerating to some extent. These businesses sort of have, would have more operating average as they scale. So one would think that free cash flow overall should grow at a much faster pace than revenue growth. Um, for once they've scaled. So, you know, it's very reasonable to assume that, you know, maybe free cash flow actually grows at 40%, maybe even higher. And if you plug in something like 40% of that number, then the share price is really, really undervalued, right? Um, then, of course, you can also ask yourself this question that, well, a company that grows at 30 40% for the first, say, 10 years is it all of a sudden going to grow at five percent? Probably not, right? You know, so maybe the terminal growth rate is also very conservative. So, I mean, that basically tells you that under I think it, right now the shares are very conservatively priced, in my opinion, is what my my point is. And then if you know if you look at the market opportunity, like the TAM, look at the current revenue run rate, current growth rate, their you know dollar based net retention numbers, and how they're executing, you can see that well, this business should keep growing. So, so, you know, there's many ways in which you can you can say that this is it's substantially, uh, to some extent you can say it's substantially undervalued. Maybe it's you know moderately un- undervalued, but it's it's definitely not you know in my mind it's not expensive. I will throw one last caveat, and this is an important one, is and I, I like this exercise for another reason. If you look at the year ten free cash flow number, it's three point four billion. That's not a tiny free cash flow number, right? Uh, 3.4 billion free cash flow. If you assume that the free cash flow uh, of, you know, as a percentage of revenue is somewhere around 30%, then this business has to be generating $10 billion of revenue roughly, right? So if you're generating $10 billion of revenue, then you're going to get that much more of free cash for that time. Um, that's, you know, another way to think about this is no security company today has kind of that kind of revenue, <laughs> right? So it, it is, you are thinking about these markets to be much much larger than they currently are, and and that's 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 in a way that's the risk, right? That's where the risk is. I'm not saying it's you know there's, there's no free lunch, um, so that the risk is the market has to be large for it to generate that kind of revenue, which results in those free cash flow numbers, right? Uh, and uh, you know I think at, at that case it is it makes sense.
0: Yeah, I I would um I would probably that's. If I was doing a model like this and I occasionally do these, what I like to do is I like to have reference points for my future valuation. So let's, for, for example, say I'm just simply forecasting free cash flow as a single line item, I'm forecasting that into the future. Um, or at that end year, that terminal year, where the terminal value starts to kick in, I want to have, I, I might even put in an exit multiple. So I might say a company that has grown this fast, and it has achieved this amount of free cash flow. Might trade at four times free, five five times free cash flow, ten times free. I don't know, whatever the figure might be, twenty times free cash flow. And then I use that to get to an enterprise value at year ten. So rather than um, have like a terminal growth rate to say from year ten onwards it's going to grow at four percent, and I'm going to guess what that is. I'll say at year ten I'm going to assume that I sell my shares at that point in time. So what would the valuation be at that point in time? And then I can kind of loop another valuation model into this one to say, okay, now I can value it on earnings or I can value it on my exit price, just like a a private equity company would. I could say, you know, I'm going to buy it at this price, which is a cash outflow. I'm going to sell it at this price in the future. And here's how that valuation is going to be made up. Um, One thing that people might say, just especially the traditional value investors mate, they might say 34% to get to um, today's intrinsic value or today's stock price is quite a strong free cash flow. You've said, you know, we're, we're modeling free cash flow here. So we want to say the operating leverage. So this isn't revenue. Revenue might only go up at 10 or 20%, but it's the operating leverage that kicks in, which sees these types of companies achieve this. Um, when you think about this 34% growth rate, would you think about it in terms of, say, what we talked spoke about earlier, where you have, um, in effect, dollar-based net retention of 125%, Whereas meaning that the existing customers are paying 25% more, is that what brings you comfort to model these strong double-digit growth rates? Does that make sense? Yeah. So like of the 34%, yes. maybe 25% is coming from existing customers. So exactly. it's only really 9%, you know, something like that.
1: Yeah, and that's why I said this is a big, uh, you know, it, it is mind-bending to assume that you can, you can get that kind of, you know, free cash flow growth. But I mean, it's the operating leverage, right? I mean, you if your revenue is growing at 60%, 70%, you could actually, you know, at, at some point be looking to grow that free cash flow at that, you know, similar number, right? And, and as you said, like, you know, if my dollar based net retention is say 130% or 125% and I get 25%, uh, that's like, you know, gravy that's coming through, then I only need to generate a little bit more. So, so those are the ones that give you comfort. And, and I really like your point about this, you know, looking at, say, you know, year 10 or year five or whatever is your time frame, and then thinking about the multiple, right? And, and, you know, what is the multiple that people might be willing to pay? If, you know, like, if if people are paying 20 times free cash flow, then this is like, you know, uh, a $60, $70 billion company. If they're paying 30, it's more. If they're paying 10, it's only like $34, $35 billion, you know. So there's a range of outcomes depending upon what people are willing to pay um, at that time for the free cash flow. And, and that tells you a little bit about, you know, whether or not you want to hold at that point. Um, yeah, but yeah, the, the the ability to, the incremental dollar earned is basically almost free, right, uh, from the existing customer base. So, and that's why I said this, the BNR uh, or the dollar-based net retention metric is really important because it also tells you about the staying part of the business, right? I mean, if you see deterioration in that metric, then that basically suggests something is not really working out well, right? Uh, the only way, only reason to hold on to then at that point might be at least in my mind is, and, and I've made this mistake a number of times, is if the revenue growth is solid, but the, the dollar-based net retention rate is not, then it basically suggests that maybe they're landing much, much larger customers and therefore the op- opportunity for the incremental extra sale is not there, right? But then you should be expecting to see that show up in stronger, you know, remaining performance obligations numbers, you know. So if the remaining performance obligation is growing at like 50%, but your uh, but your you know retention rate is only growing at like 110%, that might be okay. What is not okay is that for both those metrics to actually be slowing down at the same time. That basically suggests that you know you know maybe competition is catching up to them and, and you know yeah so I made that mistake a couple of times and, and sometimes being too patient is not necessarily a good thing. Um, you know, so there was a company called Altrix, on which, you know, I made that mistake where the DBNR started falling, you know, and then eventually the, you know, the revenue re- growth rate started falling as well. <laughs> right. And, 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 you know, then the other thing is a classic thing where companies sort of switch focus on the metrics. Right. So if they've been focusing on DBNR and, and now all of a sudden they'll say, OK, let's not focus on that, but let's focus on the annual recurring new annual recurring revenue added. You know, the moment there's a new metric that shows up, well, you know, you should be, you you know, there's a reason why the new metric is showing up because it makes the company look good on that metric and maybe not as good on those previous metrics. Um, And then, at least I remember one more case where a company actually dropped the DBNR chart. I think it was an Alteryx. Yeah, so Alteryx actually dropped it. That was, should have been a big red flag in my mind whereas, you know. The chart has disappeared. (laughs) It's still there in the press release, but the chart has disappeared because the chart makes it really obvious that it's declining, (laughs) right? So uh, you know, again, those sort of those things. And it's you know, one would think that you know, I've been doing this for a while, that I would I would be, you know, um, you know, quick. I did spot it. I didn't make the graph in my write up, but I still did not sell my shares. You see, so it's not that easy. I mean, you know, you think, ah, maybe it's okay. <laughs> uh, mm. Sometimes patients cannot be; it might not be the right thing.
0: Well, it's kind of like a leading indicator in some senses, isn't it? It's not necessarily. I mean, you can't be too. I think you can't be too hard on yourself with these things because it's like the old thing that management selling is a red flag. But there could be many reasons that a management team sells. And yeah, you might be right that they've sold because they think the share price is going down. Um, but they could have sold for many other reasons: a tax liability, like a genuine tax liability. Maybe they have certain things going on in their life where they need to do that. And so there are many different flags that sometimes people look back in hindsight and say, oh, that was a red flag, but it was really amber at the time. It's like making the best decision that you can with the information that you have. Sometimes you don't have all the information. And so, um, yeah, I mean that that's going to happen from time to time. And what we've spoken about today is not necessarily, you know, the, The solution to high growth investing, it doesn't work for every company, it doesn't work every time, and there's more to it than what we've talked about. And I think people, what they would pick up from this discussion is there's a lot of work that goes in before you get to your modeling. With these tech tech companies, you really have to understand the customer, the technology, the use case, the addressable market, how they're selling, why they're selling in a particular way. And you have to to do all of that and you have to judge all that before you get to your modeling. To then determine if your model's realistic or not. So, I feel like this is a good, a good kind of starting starting point for a lot of people that are new to tech investing and how it may be different to say investing in Target or investing in a tire distributor or investing in whatever. Um, and I feel like uh, this was this was heaps of fun, mate. So um, we had a similar chat to this a couple of weeks ago for self wealth. But um, if people want to find out more about what you're doing because you've done heaps of write ups on this type of stuff, uh, where can they go?
1: oh these are all, a lot of this stuff is actually available on, on the SevenInvesting.com um, website and they're just under articles so that you know that's not even behind a paywall a lot of this stuff is just freely available um to read so you can just head to SevenInvesting.com, and you should be able to uh to find like this one hidden profitability is is is, is actually free label you don't even need to log in um to access it so there's a bunch of you know a bunch of things like this that you know, I like writing about. Um, I, I'll reiterate, actually, one thing that that Owen, you, you know, you said. I think that that is actually really, really, one of the things that, you know, people shouldn't think about, at least I would, you know, I would urge people to not think like that, is there's no formula, really? Like, you know, like, you know, say, you know, that this formula, like, you know, maybe when I, when I was speaking, it might have come across as that there's a formula, uh, and uh, there isn't really a formula. There are a bunch of things that you can look at. And and then you have to look at sort of the qualitative aspects and you have to think about what the business is doing. And and as as Owen rightly said, I mean, the modeling sort of is maybe the last thing. You know, we get to the modeling stage only when we sort of like the business. And we think that, you know, it's and it's doing the right things and it's got a big market and, and it's got the right leadership in, in place. Yeah. And and then sort of, you know, the, the modeling is sort of the, is is a way to think about, well, is the price right? Right. Uh, so, so yeah, so I, I think that, that's probably the most important takeaway there. So I'll just reiterate what just Owen said.
0: Yep. Yeah. Fantastic. And it's yeah, it's good to double click on that. Um, so, but I, I guess I, I really wanted to have this conversation now because we're seeing some tech companies just being punished, absolutely smashed for what would seem like quite, you know, I guess decent results maybe not great results but decent results and they're just they're just not good enough um and not that's not to say that all tech companies are going to be in this bargain basement basket it, it's just simply not going to be the case but you know there are going to be some companies over the next 6 to 12 months I think that will present compelling opportunities for long-term investors and you might not get every one of them right but if you know if you have the tools to look at them and to analyze them um it could be a good good, fruitful time. So, um, mate, thanks for taking some time to join me. Um, I'll put the links in the show notes to the articles that we referenced and also to your Twitter if people want to say g'day. So, Anima Mahanthi from 7investing, thanks for joining me, mate.
1: Thanks for having me, Alwin.